Hey everybody, it's Ben Kaznoka, partner at Village Global, and this is our podcast where we talk to world-leading experts about all things tech and venture capital. Hello, everyone. I am Olga Sergeyevich, the Head of Investor Relations at Village Global. Today's episode is going to be a little bit different, and it'll focus on the part of the venture capital ecosystem that is less understood, but is very important, which is limited partners. I am excited to introduce my guest today, Steve Kim. He's a partner at Various Investment Management, where he helps to direct investment strategy and risk management for the family office. He is an active member of the investment committee and has been with the firm since inception. Steve focuses on buyouts and venture capital and has been behind investments in over 60 fund managers globally. Steve's data-driven insights on venture capital are highly respected in the industry, and I am excited to have Steve share them with us today. Steve's philosophy on life, as well as venture capital, is that variance is where exceptionalism exists and that it is only by focusing on capturing maximum variance that we can hope to find true winners. In this conversation, we will discuss the role that randomness plays in early-stage venture, portfolio construction, and the unique features of venture capital as an asset class. Steve, to get started, tell us about Veris and your path there. Hi, Olga. Thank you for the invitation to contribute to your podcast. Veritas is a single-family office that's based in Philadelphia. We invest across all the alternative asset classes, and we invest globally. It's a ninth-generation family, so we're very focused on compounding capital for the long term, and we have a very long-term focus in how we invest. As far as my career goes, I started my career at the Walt Disney Company in information technology. My last year or so there was actually helping to open Euro Disney, which is now called Paris Disneyland. And that was just a very exciting uh, point in my career. I actually lived in Paris for a year, uh, helped open uh, the resort systems there. And after that, I moved on to telecom and worked for several uh, global telecom companies. Uh, mostly in product development around optical networking and developing new products and algorithms for the industry. After that, I was CTO of several public and private companies, working again on, on product development, data integration, and commercially viable software products for the industry. And if you think about my career, really my focus has been on data, product development, innovation, uh, and developing commercially viable algorithms. Well, Using those skills and insights has definitely been very helpful in driving the depth of understanding and rigor in investment management, um, particularly with respect to venture capital today. So we are very happy that now you are in our part of the universe. <laughs> so let's move to the current market landscape. Um, you know, where are you and Veritas in terms of the risk appetite? Are there any tactical investment strategies that you've been implementing given all of the market movements in the last nine months or so? There's a lot of noise, hot takes, and, and narratives out there, uh, especially the, the last six months or so. And, you know, as an investment team, we, we talk about those all the time. And we talk about, you know, should we, should we make some changes to our allocation? Should we shift our allocation around? Should we make some, should we have an overlay to take advantage of the current environment? The key for us has, though, been 
trying to tune this stuff out and it's and it's you know a lot <laughs> it's a it's very difficult to do because of uh, of all the noise out there but we see our investment success as being able to tune the noise and the hot takes and the tinkering around the edges out of our investment thesis so we try hard not to do that not to make those changes and i think that's really the the most difficult uh, aspect of how we invest because our behavioral biases tend to focus on some of these narratives that happen across the industry. And when we want to make a tactical move, the way we think about it is looking at the data and trying to understand our probability of success. What if we were to make a change in our allocation, what would our probability of success be? And do we have data and empirical evidence to support that we've done this well in the past? So I think this is important for most investors to think about is if they're going to make a change, how have those changes in the past, how have they fared? Do they really have data and supporting empirical evidence to say that their tactical changes or when they've made those changes uh, based on noise in the market or narratives that are out there, how, how successful have they been? So we try to focus on that as well. And you've done a lot of data-driven research to understand the best ways to invest in venture capital. What are some of your key insights about what makes VC a different asset class and what that means for limited partners who want to invest in, in it? What are some of the key pillars to consider when constructing a venture capital portfolio from your perspective? I think this is where we get somewhat contrarian um, in our thinking. I think one, so if we go down the list of, of pillars, one would be focus on diversification and maximizing variance. And I know we'll get into the, a little bit more detail on that uh, later in the podcast. Don't excessively pattern match, which tends to reduce variance. I don't know how many conferences I've been to where LPs uh, talk about pattern matching and how they're very focused on honing their pattern matching skills. But what tends to happen when you pattern match is that you tend to eliminate more and more of the variance. And it's very important in venture capital when you think about the distribution of the asset class to capture that variant. You know, I think excessively focusing on pattern matching is, is another pillar that you don't want to do that. The distribution of VC returns is not bell-shaped or Gaussian. That's another one. I mean, it, it, it's, it's a huge pillar of how the VC industry works. That distribution is so different than the typical bell-shaped distribution you see. And if you think about most random phenomena follow that Gaussian distribution, I think it's something like 95%. So Venture capital and the distribution you see is, is pretty unique. So you need to adapt your investment strategy uh, based on that. Don't build a portfolio with Gaussian level of diversification. This is going to, I'm going to talk about this in a little bit more detail later, but I think this is a really, really important. Don't forget that VC works because you have high growth companies that are compounding capital. Most of the compounding happens late in the curve. So don't interrupt it and don't start. When you think about the returns that you're generating in venture capital, it has to do with capturing outliers and letting them compound over an extended period of time. Anytime you interrupt that or anytime you start that late, you're eliminating a lot of the compounding benefits because most of the compounding happens late in that curve. Her tail events are not really predictable. And venture capital is all about trying to capture right tail events. 
So that's another one that I think is really important to think about is that this distribution is trying to capture right tail events and they're not really predictable. Well, we are definitely in the business of looking for outliers and um, and hopefully catching those right tail events. But how do you define an outlier? What are your modeled outcomes, fail rates, exit assumptions for the portfolios? When we think about outliers, what we're saying is these are companies that are driving the majority of venture capital returns. They are part of the right tail. So they're right tail events that, again, as we see it, are not very predictable. We define outliers as companies that are unicorns, basically billion-dollar companies. When we look at the data that we see a natural distribution of outliers somewhere between 1% and 2%. So that's kind of what we see as the baseline. And when you look at our modeling, that's what we model is a baseline of 1% to 2%. And that's what we think is the natural production of outliers. That distribution of outliers, that 1% to 2% varies, though. It can vary by sector. So there's going to be certain vintage years where you know certain sectors produce more than others. It certainly varies by geography. And that's another area we'll get into as far as diversification goes. There's a, uh, a clustering of outliers in certain geographies that, that we take advantage of and, and we think LP should take advantage. So that's another area. So those are kind of you know how we think about outliers, what they are what their natural production is, how they're diversified across geographies and sectors. And we'll go on to talk about why we tend to bias ourselves on geographies, but not bias ourselves on sectors. Now, in the last couple of years, I think there were a lot of GPs who would tell you that 10 billion is the new billion dollar outcome. So what do you say to that? So that's true. And one of the characteristics of power law distributions is that you can't, number one, it's it's that outliers are more prevalent than you would see in a bell-shaped curve, because we're talking about one to 2% of outliers uh, being produced on a, on a annual basis. So that's higher than you would see in tales of, of Gaussian distributions typically. But the other thing is that because the power law has some weird fundamentals about it with standard deviation and means that the magnitudes can go to infinity, technically can go to infinity. Now, we're probably never going to see that, but when you look at the math behind it, it does state that the mean is infinite. So you do get massive outcomes. It's just the characteristic of the distribution itself that you see magnitudes like that. And so you wouldn't change your approach if let's say a manager said, you know, I don't believe in con- in diversification. I have this highly concentrated portfolio because I'm just very confident in my ability to get to 10 billion plus outcomes. Um, you know, how how do you think about that type of reasoning? I can I get I can boil that down into a question that we get very, very often when we talk about our diversification strategy. And it really comes down to this narrative about spray and pray. So I, I know from an industry standpoint, we hear that term all the time, and it's and it's used usually to uh, label a particular approach to portfolio construction that happens to be very diversified. You know, our response to that, we try to frame that discussion a little bit differently. And we try to frame it in in a context of diversity. I don't think there'll be an investor out there that doesn't believe in some level of diversification in their portfolios. You know, and it depend and it doesn't depend on any particular asset class. I think as investors, we all agree that diversification is very, very important. 
And when you look at the average portfolio size in venture capital, which we've looked at very closely, it's somewhere around 20 to 25 companies. And maybe it creeps up to 30, but it's in that 20 to 30 range, maybe 25 being kind of the average. That is the diversification in a Gaussian distribution. There's a reason why that number sticks out in investing, uh, because most of the investment classes that you invest in are bell-shaped. And in a bell-shaped distribution, 20 to 30 investments are going to give you a high probability of getting the average return. So it's adequate diversification. And your skill then is something on top of that. So if you have skill, then you're going to shift that average up because you have positive skill. But you have a baseline diversification of somewhere around 30 30 positions, 30 companies that gives you a very, very good baseline for getting the average return in that particular asset class. Well, if you look at venture capital, it doesn't look bell-shaped. I mean, it's obvious when you look at it. You don't even have to think about it other than looking at the picture of the distribution. And you can clearly say, clearly see that the distribution isn't bell-shaped. So that level of diversification doesn't make any sense. It doesn't get you anywhere close to a high, a reasonable probability of getting the average return. So when you think about it, 20 to 30 investments in a non-Gaussian distribution gives you doesn't give you a reasonable probability of getting the average. And therefore, when you apply skill to it, you don't really get skill on top of the average. So you really need to be more diversified in venture capital. And the way to think about it is we're talking about degrees of diversification here. It's not Gaussian, so 20 to 30 doesn't make sense. So it has to be north of that. It has to be higher than that. And that number, you can start thinking about, okay, what does that number need to be? Well, on a power law distribution, that number needs to be really high. You need to oversample by a lot to get close to the average return. When you think about venture, that's how you should think about it. It's not Gaussian. 20 to 30 isn't adequate diversification. It needs to be north of that. Now you can start talking about what should that number be. And there's some limits that you're going to have to, you're going to, have to think through on what that number needs to be. But the more you oversample, the better off you're gonna be uh, because you're gonna get closer to the average as a baseline and then you can apply skill on top of that. So what is the magic number? And does that vary based on stage or sector? That's a really hard question to answer. I, I think there are some natural limits to the number. If you if you wanna make, if you don't want to think about it from that standpoint and you want to look at the, the pure technicals of it, the power law distribution says is the more portfolio companies you invest in, the better off you're going to be on the return standpoint. Now, there's some diminishing returns as it relates to that. And those diminishing returns correlate more to, okay, what kind of infrastructure do you have? Can you really invest in 500 companies? If you look at YC as an example of a very extreme outlier, they're able to invest in thousands of companies, right? So they built an infrastructure to do that. So that that could be one extreme is, you know, can you get, can you develop or uh, create an infrastructure similar to YC where you're investing in thousands and thousands of companies? Most LPs and GPs will tell you that that that's not uh, feasible for them. So you're going to have to think about what kind of back office do you have? What kind of bandwidth do you have? What does your staffing look like? But you want to tip to more than less because you know that more is, is going to be better for you. 
So I would say that you want to do as many, you want to make as many investments as you can uh, based on what kind of infrastructure you have and the capability to, of doing that. Well, we certainly believe in that, and we use a network approach as the way to scale what we do and be able to um, access and invest in a lot more companies than we just could by ourselves here in the headquarters. Um, so we certainly believe in, in that premise. Now, let's double-click into diversification. There are various ways to achieve it. So what types of diversification do you like to see in managers? Is it geography? Is it sector? Is it stage or anything else? We like to see sector diversification. And the reason for that is when you look at the data, uh, it's fairly random as far as outlier production out of sectors. So you might have in a particular vintage year, more outliers coming out of fintech versus consumer, for example, or maybe hardware produces more outliers in a particular vintage year than any of those two. So sector diversification is important for us because there's really not anything that we see as a clear pattern or a clear, very strong and obvious bias. And what I mean by strong and obvious bias is that there is an overwhelming bias, for example, that fintech produces uh, all the outliers or a great majority of the outliers. In that instance, we would, we would look at tipping our portfolio. But if you look at the data, that's, that, that is really hard to see. So we tend to be sector agnostic there. The other reason we're sector agnostic is, is we're not predictable in how we look at future sectors. For example, crypto and blockchain would be a good example of that. AI is another example. Before those sectors became popular, you couldn't predict that those sectors would, would show up. So we like our we like our GPs to be sector agnostic for that reason. I mean, there's there's shifts in sectors, new sectors show up, other sectors decline, and we want our GPs to be able to to make those uh, allocations on the fly. So we tend to be to think about it from a sector agnostic standpoint. Stage, we're very focused on stage. One of the things that we do is make sure that. The GPs, and we monitor this very closely, we, we try to make sure that our GPs are not stage drifting. We want to be very, very focused on first check investing, which to us is pre-seed, seed, and early A. So we are very stage focused. Geography is probably the most controversial one. We tend to get questions around geography and how, and how we think about geography. The way we can answer that question is that we're very focused on geography. And if you look at the data, it has to do with overwhelming bias. 76% of outliers come out of California and New York. That is a massive, massive bias to those two regions, to those two geographies. And Does that include all companies globally as well? It doesn't. So, you know, it, it, and China, if you look at China, it's probably the other geography that produces a lot of outliers. But you, from a U.S. perspective, it's just massively biased to those two to those two geographies. And it's not just in the number because I just talked about seventy six percent, but it's also on the expected value. And what you pointed out in the past, the decacorns, the magnitude of outliers are, are twice as, high. and we've seen the numbers; it's four times as high. So you know, it it takes four non-California outliers to produce the same expected value as one California. When you think about how you're going to deploy capital, where would you want your dollar to work, right? You want a high probability of capturing an outlier, which California is overwhelmed, California and New York are overwhelming in that, re in that regard. 
and you want to try to capture as high a magnitude as outli an outlier as you can, and California and New York wins there as well. So we overwhelmingly tip there, and and we think about the probability of that changing over time. And would we ever shift that allocation? We would, but we'd have to see strong bias heading the other way. And we'd have to feel good about our probability that that shift is going to actually happen. And based on a 76% outlier rate and the expected value being that high, it's going to take an overwhelming shift to make now, those. Well, a lot of, lot of people would say that the world has changed significantly over the last couple of years in terms of remote work and change in company formation trends. And if you are driven by data, then wouldn't it take you about 10 years to change your mind on this one? And how many unicorns could you potentially miss? <laughs> okay, so that's a great question. And I think that relates to another question we get often because we're data-driven is isn't data backwards looking. So why aren't you, you know, you're focused on data, but data is backwards looking. And I would say my answer to that is absolutely data is backwards looking. We acknowledge that and we don't necessarily see that as a bug either because, and the reason we don't see it as a bug is that all data is backwards looking. So whether you're qualitative or quantitative, you know, and qualitative meaning it's experience and anecdotes and quantitative being more numbers focused or statistics focused. So to back up and rewind on that a little bit, if you think about qualitatively, because a lot of, a lot of the pushback on data driven is it's backwards looking. And usually that means like I have some qualitative experience or something that you know, that I can think about predicting something that's going to happen in the future. So there's a big question on whether the future is actually predictable. And I think you can have a lot of conversations around that. We tend to decide on the, on the, on the notion that unless you can see the future, the future is really, really hard to predict. When you're making qualitative assessments on predictability, you're using past experience or past anecdotes to form those opinions and form those predictions. So everybody, unless you can actually see the future, everybody's using past data. So we don't think that that's, there, there's any difference there. What we try to do when we, try, when we need to make a prediction, and again, I think our, our goal is not to, be, not to base our investment thesis on, on accurately predicting. We look at distributions and we look at you know, how the distributions and the return return distribution looks like for every asset class and trying to maximize our outcome based on that. But if we need to predict, we're, we, we spend a lot of time on probab probability weighting those predictions. Like what is our probability of success if we were to predict X and Y? And we try not to be anecdotal about it. So if we're going to predict that fintech is going to be great, or we think a new geography, let's just pick one, like Miami is going to be the next Silicon Valley. What is the probability that our prediction is going to be right? And if it's fairly low, we're going to stick with what's happening today because yep. it's got a higher probability. Just if you wait it, you can say, okay, what are the odds? Well, the odds are still in your favor that the, the pattern is going to stay the same. It's higher than your predictive capability that it's going to change. Right. So you're not necessarily saying that it's not going to work if somebody invests in those other geographies. What you are saying is you can't get to conviction on that opportunity. Yeah, you can't get to conviction. It's really hard when you when you weight it from a probability perspective. And I think if you look at the other geographies, it requires a different kind of venture investing. 
I've, you know, I've had conversations with other GPs in the past that are in other geographies other than California and New York, and they've been successful, but it's a different kind of investing because I think what you have there is that you have a lower or a lower formation of, of outliers or unicorns, right? So they don't produce unicorns and outliers at the same rate. So it's, you know, maybe, it, you know, we haven't drilled down to each percentage, but the percentages are low across the country, for example, versus California and New York. But if you have a lower percentage of outlier production and you have a lower magnitude of outlier production, then your investment strategy needs to change because as we just mentioned, the distribution of past returns is different. So when you look at other geographies, it's not power law driven anymore, right? Because as outliers diminish and the magnitude of those outliers diminish, then the distribution becomes more, you know, either you could probably say log normal looking, right? It is definitely still skewed, but it looks like a growth equity type market, which means that you're not, you, you can still be focused on outliers, but losses really start to matter because there's more losses because there's fewer outliers. Now, so let's need- talk about losses. You know, we don't, we don't like to think about it, but obviously, as early stage managers, we have to take risks. So we have to take losses. Um, so what are some of your assumptions around fail rates for a very diversified portfolio? You know, let's assume in these key geographies. And then how would that change once you start to move to a more normal distribution? In a power law distribution, it's all about magnitude of wins, right? So that's why you hear the term that venture capital is a grand slam business. It's not a singles business. And what we do is we model our portfolio uh, assuming a power law distribution. I mean, I think that's the baseline that you need to think about as an LP is like, what do you think the distribution looks like in venture capital? I mean, I think by looking at it, you can you can say that it doesn't look like a bell-shaped curve, but you could probably uh, have a conversation, a reasonable conversation of, okay, is it really power law is it, or is it an extreme log normal distribution? So maybe it doesn't have the characteristics of a classic power law distribution. Maybe it's just a really, really skewed log normal distribution. So you can have that conversation. But I think as an LP, you need to think about okay, what do I think the distribution is? Because that is going to be really important to think about when you construct your portfolio. What should the portfolio construction be? Things like effective duration. How should I build this portfolio? Where should I invest? How should I invest? All the To us, understanding that distribution is key to answering all those questions. So the first thing you need to do as an LP is look at that distribution of returns in the data and say, okay, what does this distribution look like? We think the distribution is a power law distribution. And, and if we were to say that it's not quite a power law, that it's really a, a wicked log normal, then the characteristics of the parameters in that distribution are very close to each other. So we don't think the investment strategy differs that much. But that's what we model, which means that uh, the winners overwhelmingly take advantage of the losers or compensate for the losers. So when we talk to GPs, our focus is don't focus on the losers, focus on the winners, right? Because the winners are what drive the returns. And you need to think about from a risk perspective, how do I capture winners? How do I get outliers in my portfolio? Because 
as LPs, we're looking for venture-like returns. We're not looking for buyout-like returns, and we're not looking for growth equity returns. We're looking for early-stage venture capital-like returns, and those require outliers. And this is, again, why GPs in other geographies outside of California and New York have to think about portfolio construction in a, in a different way. They need to, If they're in the venture capital asset class, they need to think about their portfolio construction differently than somebody in California or somebody in New York. Um, and, you know, that's they can still produce good returns. It's just they have to do it in a different way. They have to worry about losses. Um, so we model when you think about our model, we model that 30 percent of the startups that we invest in will abs- will go to absolute zero. They, they won't return anything. And then between 60 and 69 percent will have a reasonable expected value. And that reasonable expected value is going to fit a power law curve. And then we have like one or two percent that will be outliers, that will will model outliers. And then we run Monte Carlo simulations to make sure that we have a strong intuition of what path dependency means, right? So this gets this gets a lot more complicated in 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 how we think about venture whether you know something is ergodic or non-ergodic but there is path dependency in in your in the investment thesis that we're making and when we run Monte Carlo simulations we can see what that looks like so we get some intuition as to as it relates to what the potential path dependencies are and then we vary the tail parameters in our model to see what the magnitude effects are, right? So there is a parameter that we can tweak in our model that increases or decreases the magnitude of our win. So we we get an intuitive sense of, of how that changes the return dynamic the, the return dynamic. So that that's how we think about and that's how our model works. And so what does that mean in terms of what type of story you like to hear from a GP, you know, would like, would do like to hear them say their expected return is for the portfolio, portfolio construction, reserve strategy, you know, diversification approach. What, what's sort of the ideal pitch? The first question we try to get answered. Um, and the diversification really, I think is a, is a, is a good barometer of this is, how they think about the venture capital asset class. So do they think it looks like a bell-shaped asset class, which most asset classes are, or do they think that it looks different? So one of those is in one of those barometers that or one of those signals that we see when we talk to GPs is portfolio construction gives us an insight into that. If we have a conversation with a GP and the first thing that comes out of their mouth is, we don't have a lot of losses in our portfolio. Historically, you know, as maybe as an angel investor, like our loss ratio is really, really low. That usually signals that they don't think the asset class is skewed or power law driven. You, you know, they they're thinking of the asset class more from a private equity buyout lens. So that's another one. So there, there's a lot of things that that gives us a feel for whether they've actually looked at the asset class and thought deeply about the asset class. And whether just because, you know, most of venture capital has 20 to 25 companies, it doesn't necessarily mean that they should either. Have they looked at that to say, okay, 20 to 25 companies make sense for us based on how we see the asset class? That's fine. But if they just do it just because that's what's expected of them, that's an issue. So there's a lot of little things like that um, that we try to triangulate on with GPs. And most of that is around how they think about the asset class and whether that aligns with us as it relates to how we think about the asset class. 
Uh, and then we we talk about reserves. I think reserves is an interesting one. We you know it's another probably contrarian for us is that we don't like we don't like high reserves. And the reason is, is that we're very multiple focused. And usually when you have high re- reserves, your your capital is lopsided. You're actually deploying the lion's share of your capital in later stages. So what you know if you if you just want to really boil down reserves, it's really uh, taking capital and investing later in in the venture cycle. So if you have high reserves, you're not putting work at first check. You're putting them to work usually, let's say in a Series A, B, or even later. So you're deploying capital later. Now that might be helpful from an IRR perspective, and there are a lot of LPs that really focus on IRR. We tend not to focus on IRR. We're looking for multiples, uh, and we want. We want GPs that are focused on multiples. So they may have a low IRR because they're deploying capital up front and it takes a while to compound and then and they're not and they're letting their their high value companies or high growth comp, uh, companies compound. and that takes time, which eventually shows up in a high multiple. but but from a start perspective, it shows up as a low IRR. So that's another one that's really, you know, that we're different on. If you think about LPs and how they evaluate GPs, they look at that IRR really closely and they say, well, geez, it's a 40 IRR, 50 IRR, whatever it is. Boy, that that's really good. Well, their multiple may be really, really low. So we look at multiple uh, very, very closely. We look for stage drift. You know, again, it's somewhat correlated to reserves. Are they, you know, as they grow, are they intending to stay first check investors or or, or are they going to uh, stage drift out? And if you have high reserves and you know you're you're looking to raise more capital, it's really hard to put a lot of capital work early. So it tends to mean even higher reserves, or you're investing later. So those are those are things we look at. And so, where does your your focus on multiples versus IRR come from? And like, and is it the same for every asset class that you invest in, or is it specific to venture capital? Like, how does it um, how does it work in the context of your broader portfolio? It's not just in venture capital, even though it's very profound in venture capital, because venture capital is all about trying to find high growth companies. So your rate of compounding is really high, or th- your goal is that your rate of compounding is really high. And if you're patient and you let time work. That get that really increases your multiple. We as as long term as a long term family office with a very very long term uh, investment horizon, we are very very uh, compounding of capital oriented. So we look at that across all the asset classes. And if you look at IRRs, especially early IRRs, they're extremely noisy. TVPIs are not near as noisy in the data set. Uh, we tend to focus on multiple. We, fen- we tend to focus on TVPI. One of the ways we do that is, I, I don't know about you, but w- we see across all the asset classes, every GP that we see uh, says they're in the top quartile. Um, <laughs> and so we've tried to get away from that. And we actually use Z scores in how we evaluate so explain uh, Z-score maybe for, you know, for some of the folks not as uh, familiar with the terminology. So Z-scores allows you to see how far a particular manager is away from the mean of the asset class. So a Z-score of 0.6 is the cutoff barrier for top quartile. So top quartiles are very wide range. So you can have 
you know, 10 managers that are all top quartile, but you can't really tell where they are in that quartile ranking. Well, Z-score is going to give you a, a point estimate of how far away they are from a mean. So you could say a particular GP has a 0.7 Z-score, but a particular manager has a 0.8 Z-score, right? Both of those could be top quartile managers, but their Z-scores are different uh, because they're they're greater than 0.6, which is the quartile, inner quartile barrier. So we use Z-scores to plot GPs to know kind of how one GP differentiates themselves on another. So if they have a high Z-score and they have a lot of made made a lot of investments or they have a lot of funds in market over time that's a that's a compelling argument for a particular gp versus their quartile ranking so we use these scores a lot in how we think about it and and we use it we use that z score on the multiple and not the irr again because there's less noise in the multiple and we're very compound oriented so we would rather invest in a manager that has a low irr and a high multiple than a than a high RR and a low multiple, all things being equal. Got it. So let's talk a little bit about what does your venture program look like today? Um, you know, is there what, what does it look like in terms of sectors, stages? I know you already talked a little bit about some of the you know preferences that come from from your research. Um, but give us a little bit of specifics um, and also maybe some of the lessons learned in in building the program, investing in managers. As you said, your approach does have some trade-offs and probably practical limitations. So um, so talk to us a little bit about your VC portfolio. We've been investing in venture capital since about 2006. And, and I can go through a laundry list of lessons that we've learned. But I think the key lessons for us is that we stage drifted a lot. And because of the lack of transparency in venture capital, it was really, really difficult for us to quantify our stage drift. So, you know, that's one of the lessons learned is that uh, unless you really, really focus on it, your venture program is going to stage drift. And it's just natural because managers are going to get larger, they're going to, or they're going to shift their strategy, or that they have ambitions to be more multi-stage, or they have LPs that are pushing back and saying, "Look, you need some late-stage exposure." Whatever the reasons are, you know, there's going to be some percentage of your venture investments that are going to stage drift away from early or away from first check investing. So that's one of the lessons learned is that, you know, as LPs, make sure you monitor that very, very closely. Now, monitoring that is another is another lesson learned for us is that we need a level of transparency in the underlying portfolios to understand where our stage drift is. And that's that's in the past, that's been very difficult for us to get. So when we make venture investments today with our GPs, we require a level of transparency to monitor that. Like as an as an LP, we want to make sure that we get enough transparency to understand what our exposure is, especially as it relates to. Um, things like sector, uh, things like stage, and things like geography, the key areas that we're interested in, we make sure that we get transparency there. So those are the things that we 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 think about. The other thing that that you know the lessons learned is that you know the things around portfolio construction and we're very specific as it relates to that. Geographies is another n- another lesson learned. Our portfolio today is is highly diversified. So if you look at our first program that started in 2017, we have uh, over a thousand underlying startups that we have exposure to. If you look at our geography breakdown, it's very much in line with what we're talking about. Like, I think it's like 75% of our investments um, 
are in California and New York, for example. With a balance of investments outside, and that's been at GP's discretion. So we have investments in Canada, for example, we have uh, investments outside of the US. So, you know, so that's that, you know, it hasn't been very difficult for us to get the geographic tilt that we needed. We're also seeing a 80, 0.86 correlation between the number of outliers in our portfolio and the number of portfolio companies. So what some of these statistics we're going to, uh, I mean, we want to give back to the industry and we feel like we have such a broad diversified portfolio that we're getting exposure to that, that the, that the VC industry will be, um, would like to see some of these statistics. So we're in the process of of doing that, how we, how we can do that. But we definitely want to provide some of this data uh, to the industry. But uh, you know, one of the ones that really really surprised us is how high that correlation is. So if we run if when we run an R squared on it's it's seventy four percent of outlier production is related to the size of, of portfolio. So it's a really high number. Um, and so that number, thousand over thousand startups. Um, you know, how many of those companies are your direct investments? How many fund managers do you have? What does that look like? None of those are direct. They're all through funds, and the reason we do that is to get the scale that we're talking about. It's really difficult to get the level of diversification that we want making direct investments because we're trying to be we're trying to oversample in venture capital and our target is is trying to be somewhere around 20% of of having exposure to roughly 20% of all uh startups by vintage year that is getting venture capital funding so we have a really high bar and the only way we can do that is really through investing through funds uh, to get that level of scale. Now that could change. I mean, you know, we we get co-investment opportunities all all the time from our GPs, and we're thinking through whether it makes sense for us to, to take some of those co-investments. So that's we're in the process right now of doing the analysis, knowing that you know because we're multiple focused. When you go later into those co-invest opportunities, you're giving up on some of that multiple. Yep. And so, given that you like. It seems like you like journalist fund managers, so they can go to sectors where they find most conviction. Um, and given the fact that you're looking to maximize the number of companies you have exposure to, how do you think about the risk of overlap between different fund managers in terms of the portfolio companies? We track overlap. Um, and in our portfolio, the overlap is around 5%. We don't. We see actually overlap as a good thing as long as we keep track of the absolute number and for diversification. So, when you think about it, we want to be random as much as possible. And what I mean by that is, it, it gets a little confusing because we're focused on California, which is a huge bias, right? But then, but then I'm talking about being random, right? What we mean by random is that when we tilt our portfolio to a particular bias like California, we want to be random within that market because we know that there's. Uh, high magnitude outliers that come out of California, and we know the numbers are high, but we don't know exactly where those are going to come out. Could they come out of, you know, uh, X, Y, could they be, you know, I mean, some of the network, there's a lot of networks out there, right? So we keep track of those networks to make sure that we have a random representation of that market. So that's what we do when we think about it is, you know, are we getting random representation within a within the market that we're investing in? 
which means that we need to keep track of the absolute number of startups that we're getting exposure to. Then the way we think about overlap is, is that as long as we're at the absolute number, overlap is a feature for us because what we're doing is we're getting additional ownership. So if GPA has 5% ownership of, of Unicorn X and GPB has another 5% ownership of Unicorn X, then that means that from an aggregate standpoint, we have 10% ownership of that, of that unicorn but we're meeting our absolute diversification and random goals by looking at the absolute number. And then are there any investment styles or parts of the VC as um, you know, certain sectors, parts of the ecosystem, where you feel that getting that exposure could lead you to more outliers, you know, for example, emerging managers versus established franchises, or um, you know, or something else. Maybe there are specific sectors which are just very outlier prone. Um, how do you think about that? So we like emerging managers a lot, and the reason for that is more the more established managers. Number one, they tend to have stage drifted. You know, they they tend to be bigger firms. They've got bigger infrastructures. They tend to be multi stage investors. Um, so that's one. We think that established managers are more, more prone to pattern match. They really like to hone in on certain things that have worked for them in the past, and trying to develop a better way of doing the same thing over and over again and and looking for that incremental improvement. We think that that reduces variance, that emerging managers are much more apt to look for variance and look for outliers and hunt for outliers in the variance. So that's that's so those are really two really really strong reasons that we focus on emerging managers. I you know, emerging managers are not shy from pre-seed seed and early A. They tend to make they tend to be very comfortable with first check investing and they tend to have lower capital so that they can put the lion's share of that capital to work in first check. So there's there's a, a number of reasons why we like emerging managers. And if you look at our portfolio, we have quite a bit of them. Yep. Well, it's it's been great talking about all these questions with you, Steve. Um, and finally, to finish a thought from the beginning of this conversation about the importance of variance, um, not only in investing, but also in life. So what are some of the examples of how variance led to spectacular outlier outcomes in your life and how can we increase it in ours? You know, when I think about kind of what what's really helped me a lot is part of my background and part of what I like to do is what's considered horizontal learning. So there's vertical learning and there's horizontal learning. And a good example of vertical learning to me is the, the barbecue pit master, right? There there are there are very very good example of a vertical learner. They're trying to make the most of their craft. They're doing everything they can to be the best barbecue pit master they can be. And they're really focused on it. The, the issue with vertical learning though, is that it, it you can think about it as, as the 80-20 rule, right? Like 80% of vertical learning happens rather quickly. And then you're trying to hone that 20% and it's really hard to do. So there's a, there's a natural top off there in what you can do. So the, what I've been fortunate enough in my career and my experience and my background is, is really on the horizontal learning piece of it. And it's weird because when I was a kid, uh, my parents, unbeknownst to them, kind of took, uh, you know, kind of made me go into a more horizontal learning 
uh, environment is because of my immigrant background. I had to learn English and part of learning English was is reading books and reading a lot of books and watching TV and doing all kinds of stuff. So that really spurred my horizontal learning and horizontal learning doesn't max out near as quickly as vertical learning does. And horizontal learning takes advantage of variance, right? Because what you're doing is you're learning things in a horizontal manner instead of vertical manner. So you're looking for all these different topics and new topics. And if you're really fascinated and drawn to horizontal learning, it really, really helps you to maximize variance and maximize variance thinking. And you get to see and see all these edge connections between all the diverse learning that you that you have. And that really spurns, uh, spurs creativity and innovation. And that's really been my kind of my career. I've been very, very fortunate that I've really enjoyed horizontal learning. And it was, and it's really allowed me to take advantage of that from a from an innovation and creativity standpoint. And if you look at my career, you can you can see that throughout my career. Well, on behalf of all journalists out there, thank you for providing uh, the quantitative backing for um, why that approach might work out well in life. Well, Steve, it's been a pleasure having you here on the podcast. Always enjoy our conversations um, and look forward to collaborating more. Thank you again for the invitation, Olga. I really enjoyed the conversation. 